I'd like to talk about devotion tonight. <clears throat> the teachings often speak about the two pillars, the zwei Säulen, of the entrance gate to liberation and enlightenment. And the two qualities of heart and mind which support this gate are one is trust and devotion and the other one is great compassion, bodhicitta. These two qualities refer to two different ways in which our heart and mind open and enable inner transformation. Perhaps we could say trust and devotion is an opening within oneself it opens us for the for the blessings of the dharma and overcomes our own resistances to surrendering completely to the practice while great compassion is an opening towards others towards the outside when one opening one of the openings is blocked the inner process of transformation or the walking on the path of awakening cannot really take place. But when we become fluid and open in both directions, receiving within and caring outside, you could say, then the spiritual energies of insight and understanding and of generous, active compassion and service begin to flow. As an illustration, I could perhaps think of an electric lamp or bulb. In order for an, an electric bulb to glow, to shine, it has to be connected with two electrical wires a plus or positive pole and a minus or negative pole. And where, when there is a loose contact with one of the wires, the electricity won't flow and the light won't shine. But when the electric current flows unhindered, then the lamp will shed its light. Tsonni Rinpoche, a lama in the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, writes, Profound devotion and great compassion are the best means for the realization of enlightenment. It's not exactly what we usually hear, so it's interesting. Of the two pillars, today I'll talk about the first one, faith, trust, devotion. And I think first it has to be clear that it's not just any kind of trust or devotion. Rather, it's something we might perhaps call right trust or right devotion, the way right is used in the Eightfold Path, like right understanding, right attitude and so forth. It's appropriate, helpful, and 
wise, wholesome devotion. In the text we find some interesting statements. And here it's more using right trust. In one place it says, Trust is a wholesome, skillful quality in the mind and heart which makes the mind open and clear. So there's a, an opening, a relaxing quality about it. When we trust, in the moment we trust, we can relax, we can let go, we can open. Unlike when we're afraid, when we're away from trust, we hold on, we're tight, we're closed. This distinguishes it from mere belief or blind belief, which tends to make the mind closed, since it needs to hold on to what it believes in. Avoiding all new and different possibilities, feeling even threatened by different possibilities. We can see that, for example, in sectarianism. It can so quickly, so easily arise in spiritual or religious groups and circles, including our own. And we can see it arise in our own minds. When there is belief without the foundation of our own personal experience, we can easily get tight and defensive or else evasive and we can't relax or open. There is another text that points to a slightly different aspect, also very positive. Trust produces a joyous state of mind free from turmoil. So it says when there's trust and devotion, the mind is not upset. I think if we're interested in inner clarity and peace, here's a force which seems to be essential to it. And one text finally says, trust, and again, it must be right trust. Trust acts as the doorway through which all positive, wholesome qualities manifest. So what we're looking at here is quite a wonderful and miraculous force. It's a doorway for all positive qualities to arise. And therefore it's a fundamental and very helpful aspect of practice. In the discourse, the Buddha confirmed this when he said, just as a burnt seed is unable to produce a sprout, likewise a mind devoid of trust is unable to cultivate anything wholesome. While with right trust and devotion, the whole path opens up for us. Let's look at what exactly it is, this trust, this devotion. And the first question could be, what do we trust in? What is it that we generate devotion for in order for it to be right, wholesome and helpful 
It's in connection with the so-called taking of refuge or going for refuge that we can get a sense of what right trust and right devotion might be. And that's certainly nothing new for most of you. It is defined, as you all know, as trust in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And yet this is not to be understood as, a, as it often is, even in, in, in Buddhist cultures, as a creed, as a confession of faith, as ein Glaubensbekenntnis. Much rather, it's a turning towards that which helps us to come into harmony with life, which enables our hearts and minds to be liberated. And first, it's the quality of awakening that we can trust in or bring our devotion to. Waking up from endlessly being lost in our thoughts, feelings, stories, dramas, and even more, awakening from our ignorance and delusion. Being awakened means Buddha. It's the literal translation of Buddha, someone who is awakened. So it's trusting in that process or event of awakening. Secondly, it's trusting in the recognition and the understanding of reality, of life, as it really is, in its lawfulness, in its true nature. And it goes together with trust in those teachings and ways and means which help us to see clearly and to liberate our hearts. That's what is meant by trust in Dharma. And any method and teaching that clearly brings hearts and minds to liberation is worthy of our trust, no matter what its kind of title or ism is. That's really the criteria. Thirdly, it's trust in those who have gone on the path before us or are going on the path before us who have realized, at least to some significant extent, in the development and transformation. Not only when giving Dharma talks sounding kind of good but also in their way of being in their conduct that's trust in Sangha Sangha as a refuge and it's exactly this definition of right trust which works for right devotion as well devotion to awakening to a practice that connects us with life and liberates the heart and mind. Katrin Felder, a good friend and colleague, gives uh, an illustration which her Indian yoga teacher, Dr. Jayadeva, gave as an illustration for devotion. It says, imagine a slanting surface, you know, like that. One that isn't, but one that is not smooth like this one would be, but one that's uneven with bumps and deep grooves and 
throws and hollows when you put a ball at the top it starts to roll down but it'll get stuck here and there and it only roll down slowly if at all to the bottom to the goal where it's supposed to go but the more the surface is tilted the faster the ball will roll down towards the goal even when it's bumpy and uneven so if it's just a little tilted you know probably get stuck in the first uh, mulde if it's really steep <laughs> it'll roll down no matter what is there in its way right devotion corresponds to the inclination of this surface okay the stronger the inclination the steeper the slant the stronger the devotion the more effective our practice gets the sooner we reach our goals with regards to where to direct our devotion we get interesting pointers from various different Buddhist traditions first of course it's the devotion to Buddha Dharma and Sangha as already mentioned in the sense I mentioned then in the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition an important practice aspect is the so-called Guru Yoga it's the devotion to the teacher and this can be understood as follows after years and years of practice and after years in that tradition after years of observing and checking out one's teachers one then a practitioner then decides on one person to be their guru and sort of raises that teacher to guru status within themselves then one begins from that point on to see this teacher as, as a fully enlightened Buddha or a fully enlightened Tara not actually knowing where you know what the realization is and irrespectively of what it really is and one then practices in seeing and experiencing their teacher as a Buddha and this can have a very powerful effect on the person's practice and I'll explain but first uh, we always have to but first I want to mention the problems that this approach can obviously cause it's problems particularly westerners are prone to get caught in and we can see that not here because we don't do this practice but we can see that it's being caught in, in attitudes of blind belief or even dependency it can lead to fundamentalism or naive romantic adoration idolization and that can constitute the erroneous path at times even very intelligent people can be found on I guess I don't need to say more about this very interesting though are of course the positive effects this practice of guru devotion can have as one trains oneself in seeing one's guru as one with the Buddha as being a Buddha 
or a fully enlightened Tara. A completely new and different relationship begins to emerge as if some sort of psychic channel had opened. In this tradition one speaks of waves of blessings which flow through this channel to the practitioner. I'm not trying to convince you to start this kind of practice by the way. But by doing the following exercise or meditation we might get a tiny bit of a taste of what can actually happen when we are convinced to be in the presence of a Buddha of an enlightened being. It's a meditation Jack Cornfield offers from time to time and if you feel like going along with it if you want to just for minutes, close your eyes imagine yourself being in a difficult situation a difficult situation you, you know you have experienced maybe a one-time situation you remember or one that tends to repeat itself may repeat itself again now when you sort of have a sense of that kind of situation look within yourself, look around, where, where is it? Where does it happen? What's the place? Where, where are you in that situation? Is it the situation you're alone in? Or is it the situation you're with someone else? What are the surroundings? And being in that difficult situation, how do you feel? So maybe look, how, how do you feel in the body in that moment, that situation? Now imagine there's a knock on the door. Someone enters the scene. It's the Buddha, or it's perhaps, that depends on you, it's perhaps Mary or Jesus or Tara, or it's a wise being or an angel, somebody that is relevant for you, somebody wise, somebody compassionate, somebody quite enlightened. She or he comes in and recognizes the difficult situation you are in and offers to take your place, to change roles. And you agree and you change places and change roles. 
And now you're somewhere on the side of the scene and you observe. How is the Buddha or the Tara, how is he or she acting in that very same situation? What do they say if they say something? What do they do or, or don't do? And how does their body feel? And if there are people, if there are others around, how do people react? Now the agreed time is almost over. And here she gets ready to leave. Before they leave, they offer some helpful, supportive words of advice, or perhaps they offer a small gift or a symbol, whatever it may be. And they bid farewell and leave. And you can, in a moment or two, you can come back here, open your eyes. To be in the presence of a Buddha, to be in the presence of an enlightened being, can touch us quite deeply, can influence us quite remarkably. You imagine practicing that seriously. But also, if in this meditation there is something in you that had a sense of what that being would be like. If something in you knew what they would do in that moment, if you got a sense of what it would be like, it must be in you. It must be in all of us. So it's really to connect with that within us, to bring that to life that this practice leads to. Then this practice of Guru devotion 
the path is cultivated as follows. In developing great appreciation for this presence of the Guru, Buddha, one begins to perceive oneself as being the Buddha, starting to get a sense of what it is within us, starting to get a sense of Buddha nature being who we really are. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about all these qualities. We could never find deep wisdom if it weren't somewhere within us. And then the exercise consists of acting in the way of an enlightened human being. That's the exercise. That's the practice. To act and respond the way a Buddha or Mary or Tara or Jesus would. So it's a very powerful practice. And practice with effort and genuine deep devotion. To venture into this practice, one needs courage, trust, and again, devotion. But as one does, also more and more trust and devotion emerge. Now in the Theravada Vipassana tradition, the formal practice of Guru devotion is not known at all. Yet, very interesting to see in Buddhist cultures in Asia, how deep often the devotion of students, of disciples to their teacher is in these cultures. It's quite touching and again inspiring. Also there are many indications as to the direction one's devotion should be turned towards. In the Pali Canon there's the description of an incident in which a monk, a disciple of the Buddha, gazed at him with deep admiration for days on end. And here we need to know or to remember, to hear, that the Buddha must have been a, a very radiant, a very impressive and inspiring being. Impressive and inspiring both in his physical appearance as much as in his way of being. And I don't like if he hits it at all, but I like to read from Hesse's Siddhartha. Look, said Siddhartha softly to Govinda, there's the Buddha. Govinda looked attentively at the monk in yellow robes who could not be distinguished in any way from the hundreds of other monks. And yet, Govinda soon recognized him, and they followed him and watched him. The Buddha went quietly on his way. His peaceful countenance was neither happy nor sad. He seemed to be smiling gently, inwardly, with a secret smile not unlike that of a healthy child. He walked along peacefully, quietly. He wore his robes and walked along exactly like the other monks. But his face and his step, his peaceful downward glance, his peaceful downward hanging hand and every finger of his hand spoke of peace, spoke of completeness, sought 
nothing, imitated nothing, reflected a continuous quiet and unfading light, an invulnerable peace in which there was no seeking, no will, no counterfeit, no effort, only light and peace. The Buddha certainly knew about the power of his presence and radiance. He watched the admiring monk who had been gazing at him for a long time and finally admonished him, saying, when you look at me, you don't really see the Buddha. It's when you see the Dharma, when you understand the nature of reality that you truly see the Buddha. Literally he said, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. So ultimately it all comes down to devotion to our practice. My teacher Geshe Rapten, Tibetan tradition, in whose tradition, guru devotion was central. He often told us, if you have real and genuine devotion to your teacher, then you should really listen to what he says and even more, really practice what he teaches with great devotion. Everything else is pretty useless. To truly practice with great devotion. So, we're back to where we've been before. It's clear that the single most, single most thing that really matters in our practice is what we do here, but not only here, but practice throughout our life. It's a kind of no-nonsense dharma. There is no hocus-pocus of enlightenment. And this in all this all my teachers have been very, very clear. Also not just in speaking about it, but really in the way they practiced and they been living their life. John Master Sheng Yen, who has been here at our center three years ago, was asked in an interview whether it's possible for Westerners to attain enlightenment. And in his response, he said that East or West was not at all what really matters. He said, rather, what matters is how much someone really wants to get enlightened and accordingly completely dedicates his or her entire life to it. So here again, question of devotion, a question of the angle of inclination of the aforesaid surface. Last point here is the question, how do we make the angle of inclination steeper? What can produce the necessary thrust to the ball that goes down? How can we develop Dharma devotion? Basically, I see two approaches, two ways in which we can do this. 
both are helpful and I guess both are necessary to some extent. One is the contemplation of the difficulties, the inner conflicts, the pain, the suffering to which we are exposed and from which we can liberate ourselves successively through practice. The other, the second, is the contemplation of the happiness, the freedom, the serenity and the connectedness that can be realized through effective practice. And also the inspiration we can tap into by listening to teachings, by reading encouraging texts, by visiting inspiring places, by being together with realized people. And I'll say more in a minute. And of course, there are also ways and means we can apply in order to weaken or even kill our devotion to the practice. Also quite widespread. It's the opposite. It's to avoid an awareness of suffering and our pains. It's to pretend that we don't have any difficulties. No matter what life brings us in terms of sickness or failure or separation or loss or death. same time it's to let ourselves be impressed and dazzled by possessions, by wealth, by success and so forth. And it's to avoid all kinds of teachings on the true meaning of life and the spiritual path and to lead a very, very busy life instead. But if we really want to inspire ourselves, we can contemplate the following. And here's the first of the two approaches. We are exposed to all kinds of difficulties in life. And all too often we use these outer difficulties, calamities, problems, crises to create great inner suffering for ourselves. Through irritation, through anger or hatred, through attachment or desire, through fears and worries, through envy, jealousy, conceit and all the rest endlessly. Honestly and genuinely looking at this in our hearts and minds should push us into wanting to practice quite urgently. We have understood the truth of the brilliant statement by Sylvia Borstein, a Vipassana teacher from California. Pain is unavoidable, suffering is voluntary. Pain is unavoidable, suffering is voluntary. Schmerz ist unvermeidlich, Leiden ist freiwillig. Eventually, not right away. Seeing that, understanding that, and yet seeing that even in small calamities we may find it difficult to stay relaxed, to stay at ease, to see that it's actually possible and yet it's so difficult for us to do it. This too should nudge us persistently into practice. It's also very helpful to reflect on the optimum situation as human beings which we here, all of us here, have. In this we reflect on the fact that we have interest in a deeper understanding of life, 
suffering and liberation, an interest in the cultivation of compassion and of wisdom. We can reflect on the fact that we have optimum conditions for practice. Our material situation is good enough, otherwise we couldn't be here in practice. We have outer freedom, we can go where we wish to go, we can read, write, print, speak and learn whatever we want. Spiritual teachings of all kinds are at our disposition and we have good practice facilities, many different teachers, we can choose which ones suit us. All of this is very precious and wonderful and we shouldn't take it for granted because all of this is also impermanent and that's the other reflection. It can change and go away any time. It looks so solid. Circumstances change, people change, a life itself is very fragile and impermanent. Just as an arrow, once it's been shot, doesn't hesitate but swiftly reaches its goal, even so does our life swiftly approach its end, says Nagarjuna. And the great poet Bodhisattva Shantideva says, Now you have the boat of a human body, a human life. So cross the mighty river of suffering. Dreamer, it's not the time for sleep now. This boat will be hard to find again. And dreamer and sleep, by the way, also refers to being busy. So this is one of the two practice approaches to generate devotion to the Dharma. The second one is the contemplation of the happiness and freedom that is possible through effective practice. In many traditions, one reflects regularly on the wonderful qualities of a Buddha, the deep wisdom, the great compassion, the unshakable inner peace. The verse that says, sorry, it doesn't say it, it's in German. (laughs) I read it in German and apologize for those who won't get it. I don't have it in English. And it wouldn't sound good if I do it right away. <laughs> so wie die Wolken zur Regenzeit mühelos große Wassermengen zur Erde strömen lassen und beste Ernte bewirken, genauso strömt aus den Wolken des Mitgefühls der Regen der edlen Lehre der Buddhas herab und bewirkt kontinuierliche Ernte zum Wohle aller Lebewesen. That's thinking, reflecting on the compassion and the wisdom of enlightened beings. Or we can contemplate the healing, opening, connecting and enriching effects of generosity. Thinking how wonderful generosity is for those who practice it and for those who are the receiving end. And to do the same contemplation on the enriching effects of ethical conduct. And I've been talking about this last week, especially generosity. Or we meditate on the genius of 
just the liberating power of the Dharma and think about how amazing it is that there is that kind of teaching, that kind of path, that kind of practice available and what it can do, how it can change beings. These meditations are known as anusati, contemplations, and they serve the purpose, again, of generating inspiration, interest, and devotion for the practice. And they work whenever we actually apply them, use them, practice them. Also extremely helpful is to meet truly inspiring human beings. Some of us have been very privileged. All three of us teachers here, and also some of you, had the good fortune to meet uh, Master Sheng Yen, I mentioned just before, for a week's retreat here. And some of us, quite personally, while acting as tour guides in the mountains and city, it's just so incredibly inspiring and encouraging to be around someone like him and others were quite realized. Or get some DVDs or videos on inspiring people like Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or Joko Beck or Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. There's very fine uh, DVDs one can find. It's maybe a little more complicated to get them but so much more meaningful than videos or DVDs from Hollywood, (laughs) with a few exceptions. Listening to Dharma talks, reading of Dharma books can deepen our devotion. And what's often mentioned in all texts as a means for inspiration is pilgrimages. Something we do so much or we can think of. And still, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, it's to go to places like Bodhgaya, India, where Prince Siddhartha became the Buddha. And it is inspiring in some very, very mysterious way to be there. Or to go to Sarnath, where he began to teach. Whatever inspires us, we need to do it in order to strengthen our devotion. And again, the most effective is ultimately our own practice. When our inner attitude noticeably changes, becoming wider and more open, when our mind feels freer and our heart is more deeply connected with people, with life, then devotion to the Dharma becomes more and more part of our being. So this is one of the pillars of the gate to awakening. And the other one is great compassion and bodhicitta, as I mentioned. Not, eno- not enough time to talk about it now, but please do read, do inform yourself about, do practice this most wonderful, precious quality in us. The determination to complete the past so as to be of greatest benefit for all of life. like to close one of the very famous verses by Shantideva 
Therefore, I must put these teachings into practice. What's the use if we only speak about them? Does a sick person benefit from just reading medical texts? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.